Hey there, everybody. We are so glad you joined us today. No matter what you've had going on this week, we are so glad you're here and you are welcome here because at Menlo Church, everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect and anything is possible. We hope you'll enjoy the message. Let's take a look. Well, I want to say good morning to everybody in this room and hi to everybody at all of our sites all across the Bay Area. Uh, and add one word to what Eugene just said. I think it's so cool that a church would be so committed to something like Starting Point that we would pay you for babysitters. Uh, if you're thinking about that, you should know that's not like a blank check. Um, so if you're thinking about having your nephew doing it and paying him $1,000 an hour, they're like, it's a limit to the amount that will reimburse you. But we want everybody to be connected here, and Starting Point's a great way of doing it. Uh, I'll start with this. In a race or a marriage, in life generally, what matters most isn't how you start, it's how you finish. So you can't really design your life well unless you start with the end in mind. We're in a series called Designing Your Life. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Brian talked about patience. And then last weekend, if you hear Dave Evans, this amazing mind, talked really fast, had amazing content on how do you discover your calling, your sense of vocation. And this week, I want to look at a man in the Bible named Solomon and how he designed his life and what that has to teach us about finishing well. Uh, nobody in life gets to design how you start out. One of the lessons we learned from Solomon is you can come from a messed up family and still be used by God. How many of you come from an imperfect family? Anybody here? Okay, pretty much everybody. Uh, I'll bet hardly anybody's story is worse than Solomon's. Okay, to understand his story, you have to get the start. His oldest half-brother, Amnon, had violated their half-sister and when their father David did nothing about it, Amnon was killed by their second oldest half-brother named Absalom. Absalom wanted to take the throne away from his own father David, and so he was killed by David's general. David was devastated by this. He famously cried, oh, Absalom, my son, my son, if only I could have died instead of you. Now, that's actually what Absalom wanted for David to die instead of him, but David was not willing to do that when Absalom wanted him to. So then, number three, Adonijah was also hyper-ambitious. We're told David was still king, but he was growing old. And then, now Adonijah, whose mother was Haggith, put himself forward and said, I will be king. So he got chariots and horses ready with 50 men to run ahead of him. And then by way of explanation of why would his son do this to his dad, parenthetically, his father had never rebuked him by asking, why do you behave as you do? David apparently was just passive as a father. So if you're a parent, a real good question to ask your kids sometimes is, why do you behave as you do? David didn't do this. Everybody paid a price. Meanwhile, Solomon was the child of David and another woman, Bathsheba. Bathsheba had been taken by David in adultery. David had her first husband killed on the battlefield. And it turned out that apparently David had promised Bathsheba that Solomon was going to be king. 
But now it's real clear. If Adonijah becomes king, Adonijah will kill his half-brother Solomon. So Solomon kills Adonijah first. So a little review. In a nutshell, David's son number one is killed by son number two. Son number two is killed by David's general Joab, who David, with his dying breath, left instructions to be killed. Son number three, Adonijah, is killed by David's son Solomon. Anybody have a family worse than that one? By the way, if you're ever tempted to look at our current political situation and think things could never get worse than this, it was actually worse back then. So finally, Solomon is named king, consolidates his power. Solomon is young and handsome and energetic and devoted, and one day he goes to worship God, and God appears to Solomon in a dream. And God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Amazing offer. Solomon makes his request. He begins by thanking God for his goodness. You have shown great kindness to your servant. You have made your servant king in place of my father, David. Really interesting language here. Solomon's a king, but he describes himself like a servant, like a servant that's a king. And then comes Solomon's request. He says challenge of being a king is going to be too much for him. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people, to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? And God's very pleased. God says to Solomon, you know, you could have asked for anything for yourself, for riches or, or, uh, or long life, or glory, but instead you asked for wisdom to help serve my people. Therefore, I will give you wisdom and wealth and honor and a long life. And Solomon was very wise. Immediately after this comes a famous moment when two women come before him. Uh, they're both prostitutes and both claim to be the mother of a little baby. And they each demand custody. Solomon thinks about this and he tells them he's going to cut the baby in two and they each get half. And one of them immediately cries out, don't do that. In that case, give the baby to the other woman, just let the child live. And Solomon realizes she must be the real mother and gives the boy to her. Now, the reason the text tells us their occupation is that in the ancient world, prostitutes were the least likely to get justice. They were at the bottom of the ladder. No little girl grew up hoping to enter that occupation. Nobody does today. They lived at risk. They lived in the margins. And here's a king who cares about them. Here's a king who will bring justice and wisdom to those least likely to receive it. He really is living like a servant. And we're told the nation holds him in awe. And words about what a remarkable man Solomon is get around. God gave Solomon wisdom and very great insight and a breadth of understanding as measureless as the sand on the seashore. Solomon's wisdom was greater than the wisdom of all the people of the East. He was wiser than anyone else, including Ethan the Ezraite, wiser than He-Man, Calcol, and Darda, the sons of Mahal. This is like ancient Near East intellectual trash talk. You know, it's, our smart guy is way smarter than your smart guy. He spoke 3,000 Proverbs. And his songs numbered a thousand and five. He spoke about plant life, from the cedar of Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the walls. He spoke about animals and birds, reptiles and fish. He just knew so much. He was famous for his wisdom, so that even other rulers came to check him out. 
We're told that when the queen of Sheba heard about Solomon, she came to test him with hard questions. But he passed with flying colors. Solomon answered all her questions. Nothing was too hard for the king to explain to her. If you've ever heard of mansplaining, where a man tries to impress a woman by explaining things to her, it all begins here with Solomon. Now, as you might imagine, with this wisdom came great honor, great recognition, great power, great wealth, great glory. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings on the earth. The king had a fleet of trading ships at sea with the ships of Hiram. Once every three years, it returned, carrying gold, silver, and ivory, and apes, and baboons. Solomon is so much gold, he doesn't even know what to do with it. All of his goblets are made of gold. But my favorite part is the baboons. What are you going to do with a ship full of baboons? He's got them. And that's all a way of saying there was unprecedented prosperity in Israel. We're told that the people ate and drank and were happy, especially Solomon. Take a look at what he consumed every day with his court, keeping in mind that a single head of cattle can feed over 800 people. Solomon's daily provisions were 10 head of stall-fed cattle, 20 head of pasture-fed cattle, and 100 sheep and goats, as well as deer, gazelles, roebucks, and choice fowl. The man is clearly not a vegetarian. There was no tofu, no quinoa salads. Of course, it takes a lot of money to pay for all this. And we're told the taxation system in Israel was regarded as a very heavy load on the people. Seems a little odd for a servant king to live like that. On the other hand, Solomon was finally able to build the temple of the Lord that his father David had so badly wanted to build. And if you ever read through the text, it gives a lot of details about how lavish the building materials were. And the point of the detail is not so the reader could rebuild it. It's so that the reader will go, wow. So look at Solomon. Wow. Solomon's prayer to dedicate the temple is a spiritual masterpiece of wisdom. And then, and then, there is the tiniest little detail. We're told that the temple was so fabulous that Solomon had spent seven years building it. And then in the very next verse, it took Solomon 13 years, however, to complete the construction of his palace. The writer makes no comment on this, doesn't tell us how we're supposed to evaluate it. Biblical stories are often quite subtle. The writer just notes in passing, however, that Solomon spent twice as much time doing something for his glory than doing something for God. The temple was built, of course, to show Israel's devotion to God. Other nations had many temples because other nations had many gods, many idols. Israel was unique in this regard. It had one temple because it had one God. Solomon built it. However, Solomon showed his love for the Lord by walking according to the instructions given him by his father David, except, except, except that he offered sacrifices and burned incense on the high places. Tiny little word, except. Solomon showed his love for the Lord. He obeyed, he followed, he walked, except. Now, the except here has to do with idolatries. Making space in the high places meant making space for worship of other gods, of idols. And I was wondering, if somebody was describing my life or yours, what might my except 
look like or yours. He showed his love for the Lord by walking according to God's instructions, except with his money, or except in his lack of action on behalf of the poor, or except in his sex life, or except for the anger and bitterness that he would just indulge, unreconciled relationships, except for her use of deceit, except for the way that she would judge other people, except for the way that she never seriously intended to become a student of God by reading his word, except for the way that he never really intended to become a person marked by love, except, 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 such a dangerous little word. We've got a, a card if you want to take it with you today just to help you identify any except that could get your life on the wrong track. See, Solomon's life was not marked by a giant no to God, just except. I love you, God, except. And that's a real dangerous word. Other than that, Solomon did amazing things with his wisdom. He built the temple, wowed the world, had all this gold, collected baboons, ate like a king, smartest guy in the room. He built the room, except. And then, and then, and then, we come to the last chapter in 1 Kings that describes Solomon's life, chapter 11. And the writer has chronicled so many impressive achievements, this remarkable resume, this amazing life. And then he adds this, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. As Solomon grew older, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of his uh, David, his father, had been. That little except that was there earlier in the story never really went away. It just grew and grew and grew until it turned into a great big however, however. And there's this odd cycle. Wisdom will sometimes lead to success, which leads to prosperity, which leads to complacency and ego, which leads away from the very wisdom that started it all. Solomon was very wise. Solomon got everything he ever wanted. But he ended up doing the very thing that would lead him away from the God who gave him the wisdom. And Solomon knew this was wrong. Solomon understood God's instructions. Solomon was aware of the consequences. However, 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 Solomon loved many foreign women. How many? Very many. Is what the text says. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. Yep, 700 wives will tend to do that. <laughs> Smartest guy in the world, and he gets married like a thousand times. Really? Solomon followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did, Solomon did what was evil in the, Solomon, this wise man. Little background for why this stuff was so serious. Ashtoreth was the mistress of the god Baal. Uh, people in the ancient Mideast often practiced what was called sympathetic magic, where human beings would do things on earth to try to get the gods to do the same things. So with Ashtoreth, they would often uh, have involvement in sacred temple prostitution. Young women, young boys would be offered up to do this to get the gods to make the earth fertile. Molech is called detestable because people would offer child sacrifice. People, parents, would have their children burned at Molech's altar. And Solomon, wise Solomon, is now part of this. 
how did he get here? How does this happen? Well, there's actually a pretty simple answer. And it uh, hits you and me too. There's another force in life behind, beside wisdom. Wisdom is wonderful. There's another force. Uh, and if you let it, it will eat wisdom for breakfast. You could think of them as two paths. One path is wisdom. The other one is desire. And I can follow either path. Wisdom is a gift from God. By the way, in, in, in September, I think it starts the third week of September, we're having a series called The Way. And it's all about making the way of discipleship, this path of wisdom, available to all of us who follow Jesus. Hope you'll be a part of it. But the alternative is uh, to just order my life around desire. Now, it's a good thing we have desire. God thought up desire. You couldn't live a day if you didn't naturally desire to do things, eat, breathe, move, be with other people. But desire is, is dangerous because if it is not tamed... It can take over a life. Desire, by its nature, is kind of obsessive. When I desire something, and that desire gets real strong, I start to feel like I must have it. I can't stop thinking about it. I can't think of anything that would get in the way of it. Desire, she asked the question, what do I want? Look at a child with a donut. They just want the donut. You try to appeal to wisdom, but it's not good for you. Your body needs protein. Your body needs vitamins. Sugar and fat and lard are not nutritious. They will not make you healthy. They will not make you strong, which is what you want. Does this convince a child? No, but I want it. I must have it. This donut will make me happy forever. Give me this donut or I will make you miserable. Give me this donut and I will never ask for anything again. Desire is that way, and desire is not always connected to what is good. And if you have any questions about that, this little video came from one of our former staff members. Take a look at the screen for a moment. That's the human condition. I will spew you out of my mouth. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul talks about what he calls deceitful desires. And it's such an interesting phrase. Desire is deceitful because in the moment it makes me think, if I just had what I want so badly, then I'd be happy forever. But of course I wouldn't. Uh, desire alone always narrows my thinking because it wants my mind to focus just on this desire. In our day, it's often thought that desire alone can tell you what is good for you. Just follow your bliss. And then love, which ought to be directed towards what is good, to will the good, love gets confused to just mean desire. And so if I desire something, I'll say I'll love it. Maybe the most famous commercial song of all time went like this. Uh, if you know it, you can feel free to join in and finish it. Oh, I wish I were an Oscar Mayer wiener. Anybody ever hear that song? That is what I truly want to be. For if I were an Oscar Mayer wiener, everyone would... Really, everyone would be in love with you if you were an Oscar Mayer wiener. You just think about that song for a moment. That is one of the dumbest songs in the entire world, and we all know it. 
Here's the truth. If you were a hot dog, even if you were a very good hot dog, everyone would not be in love with you. They would want to devour you. If someone loves you, they don't put you on a grill and burn you and cut you in half longitudinally and put you on a bun and smear you with mustard and then devour you. That is not love. That's desire. Desire asks, what do I want? If I desire illicit sexual gratification, then there's a bunch of thoughts I will not think. As desire gets stronger, I won't think, how would my spouse feel if I do this? How would my kids feel if I do this? What will it do to my conscience? What will it do to my relationship with God? Well, desire always narrows your thinking. It shuts all kinds of thoughts out of your mind that could interfere with its gratification without your even being aware of it. Does this to real smart people. A real smart, rich, powerful guy just died in prison from suicide. You all read or heard about that this last week. Disgraced by how he handled sexual desire. And I will promise you, in countless moments, desire kept a hundred thoughts out of his mind that could have saved him. It's just so sad. And that force, that power, that potential is in me and it's in you. I can design my life around just desire, follow your bliss, what do you want? Or I can design my life around wisdom. Now, wisdom asks the question, what is good here? What is the best? Desire always narrows your thinking or your focus. Wisdom always broadens it so that I can quite calmly look at every option and consider every consequence and choose what is best. And that's why, for example, the writer of the book of James says, if you lack wisdom, ask of God. God loves to give wisdom. God does this generously. Now, uh, to wisdom, whether I happen to get what I happen to want right now is of relatively little importance. Because I have taken my stand on devoting my life to God and what is best. And I am quite willing to put up with unfulfilled desire. It will not actually kill me in the service of a much higher and nobler life. Ironically, wisdom is what Solomon started out asking for. He said he wanted, remember, a discerning heart to be able to distinguish right from wrong. So I'm not driven by impulses. See, the impulsive will, it just runs on desire. Doesn't ask what's right. I I want what I want. And in a well-designed life, it gives way to a reflective will that asks not just, what do I want, but what is good here? What would love do? What is best? So when you see that phrase in the Bible, Solomon, however, loved many women, you have to put the word loved in scare quotes. He did not will their good, or he would not have stuck them in his harem like so many cattle. What Solomon did was desire many foreign women. And since he was king and a really smart guy who was going to stop him. What would this do to his heart? What would this do to his devotion to God? What would this do to his nation? What would this do to his children? What would this do to the women themselves? He was a real smart guy, Solomon, but those were questions that never occurred to his really smart mind. And he got older, but he didn't get wiser. And finally, he died a foolish old man. 
Started really well, didn't finish so well. And Israel would have to keep looking for somebody else until one day another man came along who was also famous for his wisdom, who said that he was also a king lived as a servant. One of the most remarkable titles Jesus ever gave himself was in Matthew chapter 12 when he said to people, one who is greater than Solomon is now here. And of course, anybody who heard that would have to laugh. Really? This obscure carpenter who had become a penniless rabbi did not have a place to lay his head, and Solomon took 13 years to build his palace, ships full of baboons, every goblet made of gold. Really? And now 2,000 years later, we know. Yeah, really. Really. Here's wisdom. If you're ever worried about designing your life, look at the lilies of the field. They don't toil. They don't spin. Their resumes don't look so great. But I tell you, not even Solomon in all his glory was dressed like one of these. And nobody ever finished like Jesus. Love and suffering to the end on a cross. Not my will. Yours be done crying out, it is finished, and it was, the suffering was finished, but the glory was just starting. I've been thinking a lot about finishing well. Uh, some of you know my dad passed away last month, and I'm so grateful for notes and prayers and messages from so many of you, it means so much. And I wish you all could have known him. Uh, I have a picture of him that's coming up on the screen. I love that picture of my dad. He just looks so happy there, doesn't he? That's John Carl Ortberg, Sr. Uh, he loved life. He loved to play tennis. He was my doubles partner. He put a tennis racket in my crib when I was a baby, just so I would know what was coming, and we would play tennis together. I started doing public speaking when I was 10 or 11 years old, and my dad is actually the one who taught me. Uh, uh, he was in an organization called Toastmasters that would teach people how to speak, and so... Uh, when I would get invited when I was a kid, he would just show me how do you do research and, and brainstorm ideas and craft a talk. And, and then I would stand up in the basement at 227 Brennanwood Terrace, just my dad would be there, and I would practice talking. That's how I learned how to do what I do. Every talk I give, my dad's kind of a part of. The finish of my dad's life, the finish on the outside looked very hard. He had a cavernoma that meant that part of his face was paralyzed, and that meant his speech grew garbled, and his balance failed, and then he went on a feeding tube, and then a catheter, and he couldn't walk or sit up. This strong, athletic guy had shingles and bed sores and worse, and uh, just didn't complain much, just kept letting go. My dad, unlike Solomon, had only one wife, but he adored her for 64 years. Several years ago, when she felt like she was aging, she said to my dad, and she was all kind of choked up when she said it, John, I want you to know if I should go first, I would want you to be happy. I would be fine if you married again. That'd be okay. And my dad was very moved. And he said, Kathy, if I go first, I don't want you to ever look at anybody, ever. <laughs> so my mom's pretty clear on that. 
my dad was not a naturally expressive guy. He was Swedish and he was introverted and uh, in his family growing up with his parents, he, he was never hugged. He was never hugged. So he always kind of had to work on that side of life and he did. On the last full day of my dad's life, his arms would no longer work right, but he kept wanting to hug people to express his love. And so in that hospital bed, in their little condo, he would try to lean his head towards you to say, I want to hug you. And we would take turns. And then uh, one final time, he did that toward my mom. My mom's real little. My dad was 6'2", my mom's 5'1", and, and they always look uh, kind of funny, but just right together to me. And, and my mom had her head on my dad's chest, but he couldn't work his arms, so I put his arms around my mom, and I held his hands in place so that he could hug her one last time. And just to make sure he knew what was going on, because he could no longer talk, I said, Dad, you're hugging mom. She is the great love of your life. And without moving a muscle, my mom said, only, I'm the only love of his life. <laughs> what do you mean great? What is, there was no other love, it's just me. My dad was not a perfect father or a perfect man by any stretch. He had this kind of Swedish stubborn streak. We got mad, there was this little vein in his temple that would kind of throb, and we all thought, oh man, we don't want that. My brother and I were talking about how sometimes when we were in trouble, he would call us into the room to talk to us, and then he would close the door, and we would just pay any amount of money to get out of that. Like, no, let me out of here. But he followed Jesus, and he raised me to do the same. And he tried pretty hard to love. He tried pretty hard. He did. Jesus said one time that if you design your life right, if you live it in trust as his disciple, then when it is over, you will stand before God and God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. And I think of my dad now, who was Swedish and pretty introverted and did not expect much attention. And when I think of God looking into his face and saying to my dad, John, well done, I can hardly imagine it. But gang, I know this. I know this. There is no other end. There is no other aim. There is no other purpose worth designing your life around. So how do you want to finish? What is your life centered on? Go for the well done. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray for everybody in this room that needs some wisdom right now. I pray for everybody that's facing a difficult choice about their work or their money. 
or in a relationship in their family with a habit, with a secret, with their time. God, it's so easy for us to spend our whole life just dreaming about building a palace. Help us to aim at building something better. I pray that you will give generously wisdom to anybody who needs it. And help us, God, always to keep clearly before us that what we live for are words from you that will come, that will surely come. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks so much for joining us. I hope that this message blessed you, challenged you, inspired you to live differently this week as a follower of Jesus. And we hope you'll come back next week and join us again. And in the meantime, stay in touch with us on social media. Have a great week.